This is the Education Gadfly Show. And I called it Spokane instead of Spokane. Oh, yeah. yeah that's, that's the end of your credibility. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome my special guest for this week, Paul Hill. Paul, welcome back to the show. So glad to be back. Ah, Paul is the founder of the Center on Reinventing Public Education and Emeritus Professor at the University of Washington, Bothell. Bothell, did I say that right? That's the right word. Uh, <laughs> I, I have to ask because I, I famously, one of my worst mistakes in think tank life was doing a NPR interview out in Washington State once about an English standards report, and I called it Spokane instead of Spokane. Oh, yeah. yeah that's, that's the end of your credibility. <laughs> they, they basically like cut the interview off gone. right there. Yeah, that was it. I'd never heard it. I'd read it. I'd never heard it. What can I say? Hey, also joining us, Education's original gadfly, Checker Finn. Flying back in. Hello. Yes, great to have you with us, Checker. Well, hey, Paul, Checker, it's a real honor to have both of you on the show at the same time. Two of my big heroes from back when I was a baby in education <laughs> policy worlds, and uh, it's it's really great to con- converse with you. But really, I, I think more than anything, my job today is to keep you all from you know punching your, each other's lights out because we're mm-hmm. we're having a big debate over portfolio school districts. Let's talk about that on Ed Reform Update. Okay, well, Paul Checker, as you both know, uh, we have seen some really disappointing developments in some places in recent years, but especially in Denver. Denver, where once upon a time, not so long ago, it seemed like one of the most promising cities for education reform in the country. But in recent years and successive elections, the teachers union supported candidates have taken over the school board. It seems like they now have the entire school board. And that school board is now busy undoing some of the previous era's reforms, including uh, the district's innovation schools, which were seen as a version of sort of charter light schools, schools that had some of the autonomy that charter schools enjoyed, uh, but remained under the district superstructure. And now this new school board is eating away at some of those autonomies, trying to bring teachers back under the full contract and so forth. Checker, tell us, do you think this is just bad news in Denver, or does this have implications more broadly for this kind of reform? Well, we're seeing examples all over the place of the education system's uh, similarity to a giant rubber band, uh, which wants to resume its previous shape whenever it can, and whenever the tension is released or when somebody can be forced to loosen the tension. So the education system doesn't like to stay changed, particularly when the changes involve uh, loosening authority, dividing up control, giving people options, limiting the bureaucracy, things like that. So the portfolio district idea, which on paper is a wonderful idea, I support it entirely as a theory, um, is a good example of a locally oriented big change in traditional school system operations. But uh, the fight back, the pushback against that kind of thing is intense. And unless it's shielded by state or federal law, and that's no sure thing either, the tendency will be eventually to rubber band to snap back. And the teachers union, of course, loves to snap it back by winning elections, uh, these local school board elections which give further uh, support to my view that local school boards are not the best thing in the world. Mm -hmm. 
And is it fair to say that charter schools in Denver and elsewhere, uh, because they are separate legal entities, they've got more legal protections, that it's just harder for the unions and other reform opponents to snap them back into place or to get rid of them? It's harder for local forces to undo them. They can be given all sorts of obstacles, like access to facilities and, uh, and busing and things like that. Uh, they can be given a hard time, but it's harder to actually undo them because they're mostly anchored in state law, at least in states with decent charter laws. And Colorado is one of those. Of course, we're talking about this at a time when the Biden administration is going after charter school startup funds as a way of setting up new obstacles. All right, Paul, what do you think? You think Checker's being too pessimistic here about the portfolio strategy and the, the politics around it? Well, with respect to Denver, the fact that the school board went from a pretty strong pro-reform majority to a strong anti-reform majority within a few years, you know, I can't say don't believe your lion eyes. I mean, it really is a, a setback. And it's not an accidental one in, in two ways that the union fought the reform from the beginning and, and was unable to do it effectively for a long time, but slowly became more effective. And uh, I'll talk about that in a minute. But the second is that the reform coalition that was pretty strong started to uh, crumble in two ways. One, some people who were uh, going along with the effort to decentralize the Denver district and to increase school autonomy and choices and so on. They got impatient and wanted to go faster further, and they kind of withdrew their support from the right, if you will. And there was the woke movement just gave a lot of uh, traction everywhere, not just in Denver, to the idea that this was just business's way of getting hold of the schools and and it wasn't good for poor kids. It wasn't good for teachers. So those two narratives slowly eroded their support. But the big point I want to make is that any reform is vulnerable to these things. And uh, that if you think a reform is going well and therefore you can relax, you, you got it wrong. And secondly, that the developments in Denver, like in New York, which were there also attacked after de Blasio became mayor, they leave traces that that are pretty hard to eradicate. And my argument is, in fact, I did in in an earlier book, write that these setbacks would happen and and, and talked about a ratchet effect where you go so far, get stopped, hold your ground and go on further. And that's my prediction in Denver. I can't prove it's going to happen, but there's a a lot of stuff on the ground, especially the expectation on the part of people running schools that they'll be able to choose their teachers and things that are going to be hard to re- hard to get rid of completely. Mm-hmm. Right. What do you think, Checker? I mean, is that compelling that, look, this is something every reform has to deal with, whether it's charter schools, vouchers, t- certainly test-based accountability. I mean, it's it's the constant fight. It, it is indeed a constant fight. And, and Paul is making an important point, which is that it's you take two steps forward, you never take two steps back. You maybe take one and a half steps back. So you still end up half a step ahead of where you were before the reform started. Mm-hmm. And you can move on from there. Things never get completely undone. Uh, they they leave these legacy effects um, in people, in schools, in um, uh, school leaders, uh, mm-hmm. in teachers that don't go away entirely. But having said that, to lose a, a step and a half of your two feet is still exacts a pretty considerable price from kids and families and taxpayers and all the other interested parties. Right. I mean, look, I mean, the hope in the reform crowd forever has been that somehow we were going to finally find a way to empower parents so that parents as a political block could be just as powerful, if not more powerful than the teachers. 
Republicans, right? And we've got the Republicans right now saying they're going to be the parent party. We've had, of course, this big culture war breakout and a lot of issues. And, you know, in, in some places like in Virginia, it looks like parents have exerted some political influence. But I don't know. I mean, that that still seems like at the end of the day, we have a system where the people who work in the system remain more powerful, influential than the people who are served by the system are supposed to be served by the system. That is true, sadly. Uh, it's interesting about the parent side. Parents do come onto the side of reforms, whether it's charters or or choice or portfolio. But you know, they they have other concerns. They're pretty fickle unless unless they're continually energized. Uh, they mm-hmm. they start to presume things, and all of us as citizens are are easy to forget what we benefited from last year, and mm-hmm. so. It's, it's hard to have the parents as kind of a passive group just hanging around out there being mm-hmm. very influential. They need to be mobilized. Yeah. Uh, they need to be given reasons. And you can see what happens, for example, in New York, when they start to mess with some of the charter networks, they get mm-hmm. the parents mobilized. But I do think we've learned a little bit that goes beyond this conversation that really you kind of need a, a continual semi-elite group of people that keep making the case and keep the constituencies energized. And that's true with charters as well. Uh, one more thing I want to say before we get off this is that the, the, what's interesting about portfolio, Checker actually is it, you know, is go to be on and help me, but write this down. So I appreciate what he says about it on paper. And on paper, it's what it does, it's almost a, a synthesis of all the reforms Checker just listed. You know, it's new schools, it's use of chartering by school districts, it's greater school autonomy, it's school choice of teachers, it's it's family choice, it's transparent allocation of dollars. And all those are susceptible to the same kind of backlashes. And it is true that if you put them all together, you have a chance of getting quite a good outcome, but you also a chance of energizing really strong opposition, which is what we're seeing. So let me push you both on this, though. Why not say, look, reformers should focus on continuing to build the charter school movement outside of traditional public schools. But when it comes to traditional public schools, we should have a strategy that's more sustainable, you know, and that strategy could be more about curriculum and instructional reform. You know, I live in Montgomery County, Maryland. This is not exactly a reformy district in terms of certainly doesn't have any charter schools and limited choice, but you know, it's got a long history of being pretty good on choosing good curricula and getting them implemented and, and having pretty good outcomes. And so, you know, why isn't that the strategy is saying let school districts be school districts. They're good at top down management. That's what they do. And if you want to, you know, try to do more of the innovation and autonomy strategy, just do that in the charter sector. Why are we trying to force it on districts when they, they just aren't well suited to it? I certainly don't disagree about the curriculum and uh, better instruction and better teachers and all those things that districts can do. But they are so very hard to move anywhere quickly that any district-centric reform strategy that relies on the bureaucracy changing its ways isn't going to get very far very fast for many kids. And it's going to take decades. I mean, I just, I'm not patient enough for that approach. Paul? I agree there needs to be a a reform strategy that incorporates both new schools and and uh, new new source of teachers and so on, and that tries to transform the the existing public school system. And these don't have to be totally isolated from one another. But you know, one of my motivations in thinking about portfolio was that, that that's where the kids are. And if you really want to transform opportunity, you have to transform those those organizations or kill them. And it doesn't seem likely to do the latter. But it does seem to me that the reform movement, which is now a little factionalized, you know, everybody has their own thing. 
mm-hmm. uh, needs to be a little more self-conscious and understand that chartering, for example, is is not independent of a transformation of school districts. It you know if, if properly used, it's a pretty strong pressure to mm-hmm. for school districts to respond. And portfolio is not an alternative to chartering in places where you can do chartering, but it is a way to start moving people and money and and opportunity downward into schools that opens up the possibility of much more charter-like schools in the future. And Checker's last issue I I, I want to comment on, I I mean, I think we're all impatient. We're getting old, for God's sake. I'd like to see something happen, you know, before it's over for me. But the truth is that you can't say any of these things is going to be quick. Just, you know, seeing what happened in Massachusetts when charters were doing so well, and they got just clobbered in the legislature, and and their growth has been stopped a lot. And in some ways, if you had a reform movement that understood it had a repertoire of things it was pushing simultaneously uh, and taking it and, and opportunistically. I think the the idea you wouldn't be saying, oh, let's do curriculum. Oh, no, let's do chartering. Oh, no, let's do uh, new sources of teachers. These things are all complementary. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we will leave it there. Thank you so much, Paul and Checker. Again, Paul Hill, the founder of the Center on Reinventing Public Education. Checker Finn, President Emeritus at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Thank you both for coming on the show. Hope to have Pleasure. you back sometime soon. Good were, to see were you. statesmanlike? I mean, really. You were incredibly statesmanlike. Indeed. <laughs> All exactly. right. Now it's time for everyone's favorite Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Mike. Uh, you know, it's always a pleasure again to talk to these uh, these big big guys in education reform, Checker and Paul Hill. I, I can remember being a wee college student and reading uh, stuff by Paul Hill, and yes. I'm still get thrilled when I get to talk to it him. It is true. Guy. Both of them, they are just statuesque in our field. Yes, yes, indeed, and a and a good debate, an important debate. We'll see uh, who's right over time. <laughs> That's right. All right. Well, who uh, who who what where why how what do you got for us this week? We have a new NBER working paper that examines whether gifted and talented programs contribute to racial segregation. This is between school and within school, uh, and it's particularly salient, I think, as most of our listeners know, since uh, New York City announced not too long ago that they were phasing out gifted programs because of their negative effects on segregation. So it's right, but in, until a new mayor got elected and said, forget that. It said, forget uh, that, right. Yeah, so right. anyway, but this is still timely and relevant. Mm-hmm. Uh, examines mm-hmm. the racial composition of gifted and talented programs at virtually every elementary school, so charter, magnet, and alternative schools in the U.S. over a nine-year period. So they're looking at 2009 through 2018. Use multiple waves of data from the federally mandated Office of Civil Rights Data Collection, which gathers information about whether each elementary school operates a gifted, talented program and the race-specific enrollments of the program and of the entire school. So first, analysts look into the racial enrollment of the programs. They find what many other studies have already found, which is that they enroll white and Asian students more. uh, Disproportionately is the word often used. Uh, And Hispanic and Native American students are under-enrolled. Specifically, the programs on average enroll roughly 60% white students, 8% Asian both of which are higher percentages compared to enrollment in non-gifted and talented programs, which was their comparison here. 
and 11% black, 20% Hispanic, and less than 1% Indian, all of which are lower proportions compared to enrollments in non-gifted programs. But next, analysts do something even more interesting. They use various approaches to measuring racial segregation, one of which treats the gifted, talented program as a separate school, since many of these programs use pullout classes. And then they determine how this impacts their two measures of segregation. I don't know if you're interested in all of this. But anyway, the first measure is called a dissimilarity index. It's basically the share of students from group A who would need to move across schools in order to make the racial composition of each school match that of the district. And then their other measure is called an exposure index. It's the probability that among members of group A that a randomly selected peer will be from group B. So hence your exposure to another group. In general, results from both indices show that students of different racial groups would be more evenly distributed across education programs in the absence of gifted and talented education, but the magnitudes of those changes are modest and small. And they also find that eliminating these programs would have have essentially no impact on the exposure of underrepresented minority students to white and Asian students. Uh, And then they go into, okay, why do we see this difference? And the primary explanation is that these gifted programs account for a very small overall share of enrollments. Notwithstanding these racial imbalances that I just mentioned, they do. These gifted programs actually do enroll substantial numbers of underrepresented students. For instance, in 2017-18, the schools enrolled a total of 23.6 million students, of whom 1.6 million were in gifted programs. This was a modest 6.9% share of overall enrollment, but 27% of total gifted uh, enrollments consisted of underrepresented minority students, uh, which is still less than their overall share of 47%, but it's not chump change. It's still substantial. So they make that point. Finally, they look at both the elimination and initiation of gifted programs across the study period and they don't find any consistent evidence that these programs impact a school's race-specific enrollment. For example, there was no apparent break in the trend line for white and Asian enrollment after the elimination or initiation of a gifted program. And then the, uh, the, their conclusion, uh, which I thought was pretty pithy and nice summary, they conclude that, quote, on balance, the findings indicate that gifted and talented programs are a small or negligible contributor to racial segregation in U.S. elementary schools. Eliminating all gifted and talented programs nationally would have a minimal estimated impact on standard measures of racial segregation, and the presence of a gifted and talented program does not appear to causally impact the racial composition of enrollments over time. Mm. Oof, that's what I got. Great study, Amber, and thank you for bringing us that. So important because, as we know, this is one of those uh, those arguments that people make against gifted and talented programs. We hear it all the time. We've probably heard it since Jeannie Oaks back in the 1980s, right? That, oh, well, yes. gifted and talented programs, that's just another form of racial segregation. Maybe instead of being across schools, it's within schools. But, you know, this is important to say, look, in the grand scheme of things, this is not why our schools are segregated. Right, <laughs> right, exactly. Oof. And 
And in fact, you, you know, you hear these anecdotes of these schools that you can find where they're, you know, in some urban neighborhood where there's actually is a, a integrated group of students, you know, white and black and Hispanic, rich and poor, and all the white kids or all the white and Asian kids are in the gifted and talented program. And see, this is just another form of segregation. There's like seven of these schools in the whole country. Okay, I mean, I, I, I wrote about some of them back in the diverse schools dilemma, maybe more than seven, but there's not that many. I mean, the bottom line is there's so few schools in our country, especially elementary schools that really are racially integrated. I mean, you just got to start, start there. I mean, it's more so at the high school level because of the catchment areas, but at elementary levels when it's neighborhood by neighborhood, and because we've got still such segregated neighborhoods, you know, this is just not an issue, you know, and, and out in the suburbs, in the leafy affluent suburbs where it is more likely to be white and Asian kids, mostly they are keeping their gifted and talented programs going. Right. But that's, it's a non-factor in terms of segregation. So the only question is, are we going to have gifted and talented programs where black and brown students right. live as well? That's right. Right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And, and, and this is, if you want to argue against gifted and talented programs for schools where black and brown children go, you're going to need a better argument than segregation. Right. They're going to have to somehow harm these kids. Right. I mean, my goodness. It's right. No. And this is, and you know, well then people would say, oh, well, you know, if you have gifted and talented programs in say high poverty schools, maybe it's good for the higher achieving kids, but it would be bad for their lower achieving peers because those lower achieving peers need exposure to their high achieving peers. And probably there are probably are some trade-offs, but you say, well, you split the baby, right? You have gifted and talented programs for an hour or two a day, and the other four hours a day, you have everybody together, something like that. Right, right, right. right. But that that's another debate. That a continuum of, of services and different types of services. I know there's been some <laughs> yeah. discussion about that, but you know, some of the studies say it, it helps the high achievers, but it doesn't hurt the low achievers. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, I, I know we're, we're going to be looking into this and, and some of our research and trying to make sense of what the literature says. And look, we, we have a study that our colleagues did, a great study called The Gifted Gap, right? Uh, a few years ago that your team did using the civil rights data and also finding that, that we've got these disparities, these, these disproportionalities. Though, let me just make the point, you know, that is if you are comparing the percentage of kids overall to the percentage in these gifted and talented programs. A different way to go, you could say, well, are we making sure that all high achieving kids are getting into these gifted and talented mm-hmm. programs? They're getting if identified. You, yeah. If you look at that, then it's, uh, the picture looks differently because guess what? Asian American kids in particular are much more likely to be high achieving when you look at things like NAEP, you know, who scores advanced at the fourth grade NAEP, for example. Well, if you look at it that way, we're actually underserving Asian American kids in gifted and talented programs. There's fewer of them in gifted and talented than are scoring at the advanced level in NAEP. So, you know, these all issues all cut uh, lots of different ways. They do. They do. They do. We've heard some of this ha- happening in higher ed, you know, with, with potentially hurting uh, Asian American students. So yeah. it is. Yeah. It's pretty dicey. You got to look at all sides. Let's uh, look. The bottom line here especially we're talking about elementary, which is what gifted and talented mostly is, right? More, let's just more access, more kids serve, right? That we don't need to have artificial scarcity here. Every elementary school in America should have a gifted and talented program or something to make sure they're challenging their highest achieving kids, say that the top 10% of kids, you do that, 
and uh, these disparities would largely go away. And and consider things like universal screening, which we know mm-hmm. from a particularly well-known study that is a very good thing, right? That we need to yep. do more of that universal screening. All right. Good stuff. Thank you, Amber. All right. Well, that is all the time we've got for this week. So until next week. I'm Amber Northern. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.